FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The song you're hearing is called Essentially. It debuted just a week ago from Japanese Breakfast. That's the name of Philadelphia-based musician Michelle Zahner's solo project. And while she'll be hitting the stage at Shaky Knees this weekend to showcase her dreamy indie pop, that music is just one part of her pretty dazzling creative output. And Michelle Zahner is joining us now from Philly. Welcome. Hello, how are you? Very well. Very happy to talk with you. I knew a little bit about you from the indie punk band, I'd call it, Little Big League. Now, this was before you embarked on Japanese Breakfast, your solo project. I understand you started by recording cassettes every day for a month. That's correct, yeah. For Japanese Breakfast, the beginnings were uh, in June of 2013, I wrote and recorded a song every day. So there's a cassette called June that has like 30 lo-fi tracks. So what were you doing in those songs that you couldn't or weren't doing with the band? I think that it was just a project about immediate gratification and first thought, best thought. Um, Hmm. And I was actually most surprised at the end of the project how much of it I really liked and how much of it turned into kind of this raw source material or demos for songs um, that I re-recorded later on with much better production and arrangements. But I think that when you approach songs sort of unapologetically, that's a really forgiving process and it helps you have more creative output than kind of getting in your head and stuck. Uh, For me, art is sort of an archive of the time. Obviously, I have a vision and try to get as close to it as possible. But I think that there's something to be said for work that doesn't get all the way there and Who's to say what is better? Hmm. You did get into the studio, however, and, and, and polish up and fill out that sound in 2016. The album is called Psychopomp. This was written after your mother died from cancer. Here's a chorus from a song on that album. It's called In Heaven. First of all, your your mother was Korean, your father is American. You also lost your aunt to cancer like your mother. I'm so sorry, first of all. H- how old was your mother? My mother was 56. Oh, so young. You know, I think that for me, that song in heaven was um, about being in this sort of divided place where the older generation uh, is still a lot more religious than a lot of my peers. and. A lot of people would tell me, you know, she's in a better place and she's in heaven. And that's just not really something that resonates with me or that I've ever believed in. And on the flip side, my generation is, you know, more rooted in progress and science. And those are things that aren't particularly comforting to turn to either. So for me, my grief was a very unique experience. And I had to kind of construct what, you know, helped me spiritually um, that wasn't really grounded in things that I think existed. So you're exploring pain and grief artistically. And I should add, this is not a morose album. There's a lot of different mood in there. So what was that process like for you? 
I think that that is something that Japanese breakfast has kind of made、um, into its own sound.、Um, I personally think that you know, composition and arrangement and production are very different stages of music. So if you compose a song that's rather sad or has really dark lyrical content, and maybe it starts out as a slower, darker sounding song,、um, by the time the Goes through arrangements and you know, you add different types of instrumentation and then it goes through production. It has all the potential to turn into something that sounds uplifting.、Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's something that's really beautiful. I personally really love pop music. I love bands like Motown Band and you know, I love Fleetwood Mac. And, and for me, those are, you know, a lot of those songs are these like really upbeat. Catchy numbers that have kind of these darker sentiments. And I like that duality of having music that sounds really happy and accessible and upbeat. And then when you revisit it, you realize that it has this sort of darker seriousness in the lyrical content and it's like ex- discovering another song.、Mm. So I think that's always what I've been drawn to personally in my own work. What is it like you know, to tour and perform those songs over and over again, knowing where you were when you wrote it and, and where you are now? I think that there are days when it's harder, and there's days where, you know, I do it so often that you really kind of enter into this different mental place. You know, there's so much going on, and, you know, the songs are really fun to play as a musician, and, you know, there's drums and synths, and there's just so much going on that it's hard to not, it's hard to be. So connected to every single word in the sense of, like, you know, wow, this is a song about my, my mother passing away in a really dark period of my life. Of course, there are lines in the songs, there are moments in, in the songs where I have that kind of moment, but, you know, it, it, there, there is a kind of duality of being a performer and, and entering into this different mental space, I think, that makes it a bit easier. I'm speaking with Michelle Zahner. She performs and records as Japanese Breakfast. And she is going to be one of the bands performing at Shaky Knees this weekend. Last autumn, The New Yorker published an essay of yours. It's called Crying in H Mart. First of all, what is H Mart? H Mart is a Korean grocery store, and they have a lot of Asian groceries. It's a, grocery, it's a supermarket chain、uh, that specializes in Korean and, and other Asian groceries. But yeah, I mean, Atlanta, I don't even know if Atlanta has an H Mart because they have like, such a great,、um, they have so many great farmers markets there. Yes,、uh, and, and we have and a huge、uh, Asian American community.、Yep. Um, I don't even know if you need that chain. <laughs> We do indeed have an H Mart. <laughs>、uh, great. Yeah, I mean, Just, I, I had such a wonderful time going to, what is it, the, the, the Buford Highway? The Buford Highway, yeah.、Mm-hmm. Every time I go to Atlanta, I go there. But this is a place where you go and, and experience grief in a way that you maybe haven't been able to reach in other parts of your life. Here's a little excerpt. I wonder how many people at H Mart miss their families. How many are thinking of them as they bring their trays back from the different stalls? Whether they're eating to feel connected, to celebrate these people through food. Which ones weren't able to fly back home this year or for the past 10 years? Which ones are like me, missing the people who are gone from their lives forever? Ugh, that's a gut punch. <laughs> I can only hear someone else read it out loud, actually. Well, I was thinking, should she read it? Oh, no, I think it's much nicer when you read it. (laughs) Well, this is from a full memoir that you're working on, which is going to be released by Knopf. Connecting to your culture, to your mother. Is reckoning grief and memory different for you in music and in writing? 
Absolutely, yeah, it's very different. I would say that it's much harder uh, in nonfiction prose than it is in music because, you know, like I was saying, music has this sort of duality and you Mm -hmm. can explore different sounds that, you know, bring a different feeling or bring something uplifting to uh, something very painful with writing prose. You know, it's just you and a computer. It's kind of like trudging through the language. And, uh, yeah, it's it's been very challenging but also very fulfilling process. Both Psychopomp and Soft Sounds from Another Planet, which was our sophomore release, deal pretty heavily with grief. I mean, it was my intention to write about something else for my sophomore release, but you know, when you're, I'm an only child, I was very close to my mother, those those albums came out one year after another, it was, it felt like it would be a lie if I didn't continue writing about grief. Mm. And I think now that we're thinking about you know, now that I'm thinking about writing a third album, I really would like to move on from that topic and explore different parts of my life and different parts of human existence in general. Um, but I think that writing this book um, is a real closing of that chapter. You know, even though I wrote two albums about grief, I think in order to really go into so, you know, it was caretaking and cancer and chemotherapy and you know, all of that, I feel like there's so much more of a story to tell. And that's why I think that I really have to write this book before moving on to a third album. So uh, I think that was a big part of it. Well, I can't resist playing something from Soft Sounds from Another Planet. This is Diving Woman. song references female divers on an island in South Korea. What is it about them that inspired you? So I went, um, I revisited uh, South Korea in, I believe, 2014, shortly after my mother passed away. Um, As just a part of a healing trip, I guess. I, I visited Seoul and I visited Busan and I learned about these divers in Jeju. And I think at the time I just was really gearing up to um, adapt to a life of regimen, and um, that was what I sort of felt comfortable in. I kind of became a really intense workaholic. I've done, a, I've just poured myself into my artistic works, and I think that it's really helped me manage my grief. And I kind of looked at these divers and felt really inspired, you know, at the idea of just doing the same thing every day and having a really, you know, visceral craft that you, um, you know, just like holding your breath for long periods of time and the physicality of that. And I just really romanticized the profession. And, you know, I was finding ways to to get closer to my culture and my heritage and, and becoming more interested in these types of histories. So I think that's where that inspiration came from. That also comes up your your homage, I guess, to your heritage. Right, you directed the music video for the song "Everybody Wants to Love You." Yeah, I co-directed it with my DP Adam Kolodny for that one, and so, I'm wearing um, my mother's traditional hanbok, which is a the traditional Korean dress. So, and but you're drinking and dancing and riding a motorcycle. What's yeah, the- I think I was kind of poking fun at the image of you know the stereotypical docile Asian woman and just the sort of like stereotypes and expectations that are put on me as an Asian American indie rock musician and what my life actually contains. And there's more. You also work in video games. 
Yeah. Somebody did ask me, like, how does she do all this? I think that it seems like my projects are rather scattered, but at their core, they're very similar. I think that they're all rooted in narrative and human experience in some way. And I think that at my core, I'm a writer. I'm a writer of songs and of, you know, visual projects. And I grew up playing video games since I was five. Um, And so, yeah, the label reached out to me about working with this woman, Elaine Fath, um, to to make a little video game. And so that was a fun little project that actually um, wound up getting me involved with uh, this group called Shedworks, who are making an indie game called Sable, which I'm also soundtracking, Mm -hmm. uh, that should hopefully come out next year. The game that you created is called Japanese Break Quest, (laughs) in addition to working on Sable. So where do you go from here? Like a major major motion picture? (laughs) I'm just trying to finish the projects I signed up for <laughs> before before even thinking about any new ones. But right now it's just soundtracking Sable, working on my memoir, Crying in H Mart, and, and hopefully recording a third LP in the fall. So I've got my hands full for quite a bit. Well, I'm really glad you have time for Shaky Knees in that case. We are so excited to to play Shaky Knees. I've heard nothing but excellent reviews. Oh, really? And festival. anybody in particular you're excited to see? Deer Hunter. Um, I love Tim and Paula and Beck, um, Maggie Rogers, Liz Fair. Uh, very excited for, for all those bands. I also have a soft spot for the Dandy Warhols because I'm from Oregon originally. So I'm, I'm excited to see, to see them again. I saw them when I was young. Michelle Zahner, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Michelle Zahner, she's the woman behind Japanese Breakfast and hitting the stage this weekend on day two of the Shaky Knees Music Festival. That's on Saturday, May 4th. And we're going to leave you with another song from Japanese Breakfast. It's called Everybody Wants to Love You. Stay with us for an Atlanta nonprofit that helps folks in food service when they're in crisis. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thoughts. I'm Virginia Prescott. The 2019 James Beard Awards Gala takes place next week in Chicago. Among the chefs and culinary creatives being celebrated, a different kind of innovator will join, the Giving Kitchen. The Atlanta-based nonprofit will accept the James Beard Humanitarian of the Year Award for its role in providing crisis grants, resources, and assistance to food service workers. But before they head to Chicago to accept the award, Giving Kitchen co-founder Jen Heidegger Kendrick is with us. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Also, Executive Director Brian Schroeder joining us in the studio. Hello, Brian. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Our pleasure. So when we say food service workers, we mean everyone from dishwashers to waitstaff to sous chef or in a restaurant or working for a caterer or food truck. Have I got that right? Absolutely. So for those who haven't worked in food service... What is it like, Jen? Conditions, expectations? You know, this industry is one that works tirelessly. 
effortlessly. It is a, a industry of selfless giving, I think. Um, you know, and you know, when there's nothing that is there as a level of support or a resource in times of need can be extremely difficult for these individuals. It can it can really leave them out of a home um, and potentially on the street. And mm. that's something that Giving Kitchen um, holds really close to our hearts because we want to be that that bridge, that connector to make sure that these individuals um, have a place to stay uh, while they're tending to their needs. Well, it surprises me, I think, and maybe a lot of people that the margins are so thin. Financially, they tend to be low-wage jobs on some scale, but many of them rely on tips. Is it common for restaurant workers to live paycheck to paycheck? Uh, it, it's very common. Uh, and beyond you know, dishwasher or waitress or manager, uh, Giving Kitchen also serves fine dining to fast food. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that's interesting that we found is you know, even restaurants where there's better pay and even restaurants where there's benefits, it is a hard job. There is not a place for you in food service if you can't be on your feet working every day. And, and, and part of the stability that we provide uh, is, is to help folks regardless of where you're working. We say from Staple House to Waffle House <laughs> um, uh, to make sure that they have the, the stability and the resources they need to make it through a crisis from a cancer scare to a broken ankle. Well, so th- these jobs don't tend to come with benefits, paid vacation, sick leave, or disability pay. So if you miss work, you miss wages. Mm-hmm. Is there pressure to come to work even if you are sick or have a minor injury? I mean, absolutely. I think we see that pretty regularly through our grant program. There's many, many stories that will showcase, um, you know, there's a doctor that says I should take six weeks off work, but I can't can't because mm. I simply need to have groceries in the refrigerator to make sure my family is fed. Um, we see we see stories like that all the time. Our, uh, our intake process, so how people come to Giving Kitchen to get support, is a lot like applying for a scholarship or a loan. It's online. It's in English. It's in Spanish. If you're not tech savvy, you can come into our office and, and we'll walk you through it and, and help you with it and do it for you. Uh, but we get a snapshot into someone's life, and, and it, it is heartbreaking how many people have gone to the emergency room because that's the only health care they can afford. Mm. Uh, the doctor says that they shouldn't work for at least three months. But when we look at their pay stub, they've been working up until the time they applied for, for giving kitchen support. And so when we're able to provide that financial assistance and the money goes directly to their mortgage or, or their uh, rent, their utilities, we, don't, we wouldn't write a check directly to a, an individual. Uh, but it means that they actually can stop use the financial support to make sure there's a roof over their head, there's uh, the water's running, the heat is on, um, and heal. I have to say that's kind of startling to me. In a total foodie city, there's been huge growth in the restaurant sector. People love the food scene here. Is there a disconnect? You know, I'm not sure. I just think that this was a city that really rallied behind – a really touching story. Mm-hmm. And there is really no other industry that we have found that has, has come together in this way to help support their own. Uh, I think that's what's remarkable about our city of Atlanta and, and one um, of the reasons why we're so, so proud of, of everything that's that's coming up. Well, Jen, tell us a little bit about how it, the story that actually started The Giving Kitchen. Absolutely. My my late husband, Ryan Heidinger, um, was a chef here in town. Uh, we moved here in, in 2004 and started off uh, working at Bacchanalia and then made his way to Float Away Cafe, one of Anquitrano's restaurants. And um, after that, found his his more permanent home at Muss and Turner's, a restaurant in Smyrna. Um, and we started a supper club out of our home, something that is um, very common here in Atlanta these days, something I love to see pop up. Uh, but we started one in our home in 2009 as 
as a way for us to to put our names um, on the city in a different way, get to learn our, our food and culture a little bit differently, and really get to learn um, about our the individuals who who dine. Um, as my late husband and I wanted to open up a restaurant one day, and four years later, he was diagnosed with a late-stage terminal cancer and was given six months to live. Mm. Um, and from there was really kind of the moment um, that really changed the course of our lives. His bosses and mentors at the time came to us and said, let us help you. Um, and we allowed them that opportunity so we could focus on Ryan's medical journey. Um, and they rallied uh, near a 1,000 people, uh, 40 restaurants and bars, and an event that we now call Team Heidi, which is um, our annual fundraiser for Giving Kitchen. That initial fundraiser raised just shy of $300,000 for our benefit, and that's really what motivated and sparked the, the idea for Giving Kitchen to exist. That is a beautiful origin story. And we should mention that the name of your little uh, home kitchen at that time or the, your supper club was? Yeah, it this? was Prelude to Staple House. Uh-huh, Prelude mm-hmm. to Staple House. So how did you go about starting and growing it from there? I mean, that's one person who had a lot of friends and a lot of love inside of the community. How did you turn that into a, a nonprofit? Well, and that's exactly what we talk about all the time with, with Inception to Now is that, you know, one person's story was able to touch the lives of so many. And Giving Kitchen is really an organization built off many stories. This The food service industry is, is comprised of so many individuals working so hard, and it goes far far beyond just these individuals. We've learned uh, within our last six years that the amount of impact that we have goes far beyond these individuals. It's the children in the household. It's the other family members. Um, so, you know, in 2013, when when the idea for this nonprofit started, um, it was just something that we knew would have to start small. We would have to define the barriers. Um, we would have to define the, the, the individuals who we would give assistance to. And um, the Giving Kitchen really started just as a financial aid program and now has blossomed into so many other programs we're really excited about. So, Brian, you mentioned that people can apply for it online, but how do they actually find out about you? That's a great question. Uh, you know, we ask that in follow-up surveys or even uh, as people start the process. A lot of it's word of mouth. Um, a lot of it they heard from a friend. Uh, so we really count on, uh, one, uh, our media partners. Uh, to help us tell our story, this this opportunity is a fantastic way. So if, if you're listening, if you have a, a friend or family uh, family member in food service, make sure to tell them about the Giving Kitchen. And our donors and supporters, there's a call to action uh, that whenever you go out to eat, talk to your uh, waiter or waitress about Giving Kitchen. But we also count on our distributor partners. If you think about who's in a restaurant every day, it's Cisco, it's U.S. Foods, it's United. Uh, and, and we are beginning to tell our story in a way and 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 challenging and encouraging and coaching uh, the delivery drivers and the service techs uh, and the sales reps to be able to talk about the giving kitchen and empower the restaurants they go into to apply for assistance when they need help. That is Brian Schroeder, executive director of the Atlanta-based nonprofit, The Giving Kitchen. Also, co-founder Jen Heidinger-Kendrick is with us, and we're learning about the program, which recently and will be accepting an award for a James Beard's Humanitarian Award next week, which is a pretty unusual thing in the food business. But it's so interesting that that connecting the 
sense of nourishment, you know, what you are giving, what you are providing in a kitchen with the humanitarian award. Were you stunned when you found out about it? Uh, you know, when we first were doing interviews and talking about we had to, I think we acted cool. <laughs> and I'm now uh, comfortable with myself to the place where I can say, oh, my God. <laughs> it was incredible. Um, uh, it and, and honestly, for me, there was a sense of pride um, for our board and for our staff and for our donors and for the people who believed in the Giving Kitchen from the beginning. You know, Ryan Heidinger left us with a challenge. Um, help people like me help a food worker in crisis. And and after he passed away, his friends and family were left with this edict. They were left with this charge. And so many people from so many different backgrounds have stepped up to help us wrestle with that concept of what does it mean to help a restaurant worker in crisis? And mm-hmm. so um, for an organization that's five years old to, to have a, a national award like this is fantastic. And I, I think what's interesting is there have been many incredible, incredible, incredible uh, winners of the Humanitarian of the Year Award, but no one who's done work for the food service community. It's all been people who are rooted in food service who've reached out. They've helped people in Puerto Rico. They've helped people mm-hmm. in New York. They've helped people in, in New Orleans. Uh, but I can't say for the first time, but what stands out for the Giving Kitchen is we're a nonprofit that uh, is is looking back, looking into f- our food service community and, and asking some questions about how we can do better around issues of self-care while also uh, providing stability services here in Georgia. How many people have benefited so far? Since our inception, we've been able to award just over $2.5 million wow. to over 1,600 members of our community. And that does not include all of our stability network uh, individuals. Can you break that down for me? You talked about crisis grants and then stability network. What's the distinction there? Um, so, you know, this is this goes back to you know our origin story. And, you know, when Ryan said help people like me and, and all of his friends had raised him money, I think that the light bulb went off and the, the founders of Giving Kitchen in the, fir- in the early days. They said, well, we'll 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 do like we'll do that again, and so they started a crisis grant program, uh, the Homer Fund, which is Home Depot's uh, emergency assistance fund. They allowed us to meet with them and really borrow a lot of their strategy and structure and and how they evaluate grants and who they give grants to. So thank you to Home Depot for being, and that's another part of our story and and the community of Atlanta coming together. Uh, but over the course of the years, as we we really worked on how we help restaurant workers in crisis through this grant program, we realized people needed more. Um, that people who were getting financial assistance also maybe needed help with a food kitchen or, or, or a homeless service or, man, who do you call if a tree falls through your house? Or is there a place where we can get mental health uh, or counseling for free or at a reduced rate? And so what started really as a list, I don't, I don't want to say on the back of the napkin, but for this point of the story, it sounds good. On the back of a napkin, <laughs> you know, we started a list of, oh, you know, th- these are these resources in our community that we can send people to. And it's now grown to um, – uh, what we're working on is a statewide uh, referral service, a referral service program that not only is sending people to community services they might not be aware of, but we're advocating on behalf of restaurant workers to get sliding scale counseling, sliding scale therapy, mm-hmm. um, yoga, um, all different types of community service. And with that program, we've been able to track over a thousand people who've been directed to community services because sometimes people come to us. And, and they are in a legitimate crisis, but it wouldn't qualify for financial aid. An example would be, you know, if your, if your roommate moved out, you know, 
that's going to make it hard to put food in the fridge yeah. because you're putting you're your money towards rent. You're paying rent for two people, right? Um, but it wouldn't qualify for our grants. And so what we're able to do is get that person connected to a food bank um, or, or other resources in the community so they can weather the storm of a type of crisis that, that is genuine but not what we serve with our grants program. Right. So you have the injury, the illness, the funeral costs, mm-hmm. which are expensive, and disaster costs for crises. But there are other things. How about substance abuse? Having worked uh, weighted tables when I was much younger, um, that is something that I saw come up over and over again. Is that something that you're the Giving Kitchen is addressing? It is. And, you know, there's lots of ways to address it. And there's a lot of ways that we need to address it as a community um, holistically and talking about self-care and and the stress and strain we put on ourselves. And uh, I think there is a role for Giving Kitchen, not only to use our platform to talk about issues of self-care, but also to give other people uh, their their voices to tell their stories about drug abuse and, and alcoholism and sexual harassment and discrimination. And so you will see more of that from Giving Kitchen in the future as, as this other level of stabilizing support as we really help to join a conversation that's already happening in our community about self-care, but then on the individual level. Um, and, and often we are just helping a, a restaurant worker or their restaurant family guide someone to a community resource for, for drug abuse and alcoholism. And so we'll go to Kaufman owner uh, or a manager or a general manager who's, who has a teammate who's really struggling with drug and alcohol abuse. And, and the service we provide is just talking them through how to make those resources available, how to get them to um, a, a place of care, um, as well as you know being able to provide some financial support as someone's going through that kind of crisis. Mm-hmm. Are they doing this in other states? I mean, this is really quite a model. To, to our knowledge, Giving Kitchen is kind of one of a kind mm-hmm. scenario. I know there's a, a couple of others out there, um, one in Chicago and, and maybe one on the, the West Coast doing a similar um, acts. Um, through, through a self-care perspective, there is an organization that's local, even ben, Ben's Friends, uh, who are providing exactly that, the substance abuse kind of counseling and, and mentoring through that, which is really important. Well, Brian, next week you are launching a new stability network nationally available. So what is, what's going to be happening then? Yeah, so this is um, very exciting. I am part of this. Uh, when we began 2019, you know, James Beard Award wasn't on our radar at all. And we talked as a staff about, you know, this evolution from the grants program to then stability network. And now that we're covering the state and we're serving, you know, a food service across the board, while they're there really is something happening beyond the individual. And there's a lot of really good work already happening around wages and benefits, but no one in the food service community, um, and I, I can't say no one, uh, there's a need in the food service community to talk uh, for more people to talk about sexual harassment, for more people to talk about uh, discrimination, for more people to talk about self-care resources. Um, and, and something that means a lot to our staff uh, because we've personally uh, confronted this uh, to, to many food service workers, and that's suicide prevention and mental health. Mm-hmm. And w- something that we're excited to, to share with the audience in Chicago is that the Giving Kitchen a few years ago, or la- this time last year, took a suicide prevention training. It's very simple. It took about an hour. We had an in, in, in-home trainer come to our office and uh, provide this QPR training. It's like CPR, but for suicide prevention. It teaches you how to hear someone who's contemplating self-harm and, and, and gives you the strength to, to 
address it directly and know how to get them to a resource. Uh, that same course is offered online. It normally costs about $30 a person, mm-hmm. um, and it takes about an hour, and so that can be prohibitive. And, and so Giving Kitchen has paid for every restaurant in the United States um, to take this suicide prevention training if they would like to. Amazing. Congratulations to both of you and Jen, you know, for carrying on this mission and legacy of your late husband. I'm so grateful you guys could talk about it. Jen Heidegger, Kendrick, and Brian Schroeder, co-founders of The Giving Kitchen, a nonprofit that helps food service workers who experience crises. We listen to music from Belle and Sebastian, Dear Catastrophe Waitress, and we're going to leave you with Cooking Something Good with Mac DeMarco. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. The new Netflix horror thriller series Chambers won praise for casting a Native American woman as the lead, along with something else we see too little of on TV, a super smart black girl math nerd as her best friend. Kiana Simone Simpson plays that friend. The Decatur native and UGA student already has some impressive roles to her credit, and she's joining us now from Athens. Kiana, welcome. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and congratulations on Chambers. Can you tell us oh, a little you. bit about the premise of the show and your character? Okay, so Chambers is a spooky show. It's about a young girl. She's 17, and she has a freak heart attack out of nowhere. So that's already scary, right? Right. And um, then she starts taking on these weird personality traits of her heart donor. So the story kind of goes along as she's trying to figure out what's going on with her. And my character, Yvonne Perkins, plays this girl's best friend. And um, Yvonne, she's super smart. I mean, she's a computer whiz, a math geek, and she actually uses a lot of these things as she's trying to help her best friend, Sasha, along as she's, you know, figuring out what's going on with her. So... It's been it's been so much fun playing this character and um you know she has other dimensions like she's she's helping her mom who's suffering from early onset dementia and she has you know two younger brothers that she's caring for as well so Yvonne is a she's a really strong little girl and mm. I'm I'm so happy to be playing her. Yeah, and a inter- really interesting character. And for you, Thank you're you. an entertainment and media studies major, right? I am. But I, I hear am. you also love math. <laughs> I am a math geek. So is there a little bit of Yvonne in you? (laughs) Yes, yes. That's why I was so excited to play the role because Yvonne's just so close to my heart, being that math has always been my forte in class, not to like toot my own horn, but it's just true. Um, A couple summers ago, I actually enrolled in a calculus class at UGA over the summer just for fun. Um, you know, (laughs) you're impressive (laughs) enough. (laughs) You have every right to toot your horn. But, you know, being in the entertainment, you know, looking at the entertainment and media industry from a Mm -hmm. meta perspective, how difficult is it to find a role like that? You know what? I think it's becoming less and less difficult now because we have Ava DuVernay's, Barry Jenkins, Spike Lee's, and they're creating this space where little black and brown girls can get these roles and be portrayed in a better light than we have been before. And I'm so happy to see that the film industry is growing like that and progressing. Mm. Well, let's listen to a clip from your character, Yvonne, hanging out at school with Sasha, the main character, played by Sivan Lair-Rose. Give me that, give me that, give me that, Yvonne on the trap and they'll bring it back. 
So she has other talents, too. Yes. <laughs> the you, rap queen. Well, you chose this as one of your favorite scenes in the first episode. Why yes. do you like it so much? Well, first of all, it just reminds me so much of my childhood when, you know, we're at the lunch table and everyone's beatboxing and competing in freestyle. And at the vending machine, you're waiting on your best friend to get her snacks. The line's super long, so you're just trying to, you know, kill time. So I was so excited to do this. It's so funny. I was um, just beatboxing in between takes. That was actually not in the script whatsoever. Uh-huh. And the director, Alfonso Gomez Rejon, he's walking past and he's like, whoa, what are you doing? I want you to do that on the next take. I didn't believe him, but I just went ahead and did it for fun. And he was like, I love it. And we spent like an hour and a half filming it over and over again. And I'm like, whoa, this is so cool. Like a piece of myself is in this show now. Okay. You know what you're setting yourself up for, right? Right. That I'm going to ask you to do some freestyle <laughs> for us. Oh, you you want me to freestyle? Yes, please. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> Let me see. Okay, okay. Give me that. Give me that. Give me that. Kiki over here don't know how to act. Wait on second thought and we having a blast. Yeah, I told you I'd freestyle for you real fast. Repping Decatur and UGA. Talking on the radio on reading day. To all the students, let's rock these exams and have a good, good day with your friends and fam. Hey. Whoa. Okay, there are many, many. There's much applause on the other side of the studio wall I can see here. Thank you so much for that. And that is, I mean, really one of the more lighthearted scenes in a series that is super scary. It's, yes, yes. Do you gravitate toward that material that's supernatural and spooky, or was this new for you? Um, I feel like within the last few jobs that I've been doing, I've been getting closer and closer to this spooky horror life because I also have a film called Ma that's coming out later this month. And I'm loving it so much. Um, I, In the beginning of my career, I did a lot of period pieces, which have always been like my favorite. And I love that I'm jumping into another genre. And it's really exciting to see how um, the filming is so different of the two. And I mean, I love it. I love the fake blood on set and the screens. <laughs> well, and you're also working with some terrific actors. Tony Goldwyn of Scandal yes. fame, the, the guy yes. who played the president. Uma Thurman is in this show. I know. So, so how was that experience to work with these heavyweights? And we'll get to the other heavyweight after this. (laughs) I can guess who that is. (laughs) It was just so fantastic to be working with these people, these thespians. Um, Uma Thurman, I've always looked up to her from Kill Bill. She's been an inspiration to me on how to act without speaking Hmm. and kind of, um, you know, filling the moment. You don't always have to be saying something. So that's something that she you know, kind of instilled in me before I even met her. And then, of course, Tony Goldwyn. I mean, I've always been Team Fitz <laughs> from Scandal. So it was so great to meet him, first of all, because I was a fan. And then second of all, he had so many tips and just, you know, guidances for me. He actually directed one of the episodes, so I got to spend a lot of time with him. And just, you know, getting that mentorship kind of on set meant so much to me, and um, I, I'll cherish it forever. You know, the, their characters are so funny because they are the parents of the dead girl or the girl yes. whose heart was donated. But they're both, yes. um, you know, super kind of new agey. They're, they're, and they're kind of <laughs> burning sage and yeah. appropriating Native American kind of rituals, which is a Honestly. really, really interesting part of this. So so is this appropriation play something that attracted you to the script? 
Um, I just I love that the show is showing so much of the Native American culture. Um, I'm African American, so I know what it's like to have your culture appropriated. And I love that this show, um, you know, it kind of, ta- it, well, it definitely talks about that appropriation. And also it informs the audience about the different types of traditions of Native American cultures. And I'm very happy that um, the show's bringing awareness in the many ways. I think by them showing these different families and, you know, Crystal Valley School kind of appropriating Native American cultures, it's, you know, showing people what not to do. Yeah. And I love that. I love that Chambers is doing that. It's it's kind of woke horror. <laughs> woke horror, <laughs> yes. Gives me lots of get out vibes, Jordan Peele. Yeah, get that. <laughs> Definitely. So how did you first get into acting growing up in Decatur? Oh, my gosh. It was an amazing trip to get here. Um, When I was about nine, I knew for a fact that I wanted to act because I was obsessed with so many jobs. My very first one being an astronaut. I wanted to be an astronaut so badly. So um, once I finally convinced my mom to put me into acting classes and I was doing so many different showcases, it's just like my determination would not stop. You know, um, a lot of different things I did as a kid, you know, playing soccer and tennis, I kind of, you know, gave it up within the year. But acting was something that I knew I would never, ever, ever leave. So um, it was once I once I got to be in high school, um, I told my mom, I was like, it's it's time. So we moved out to L.A. And um, that's when I met lots of casting directors, other actors and things like that. And um I booked my first film, A Christmas Blessing, when I was 16. So that was many years from when I first began. So it was a trip. But um, I uh, had lots of help from mentors like um, Tony Vaughn from Tyler Perry's Meet the Brown, the TV mm-hmm. show. I met him in a, in a grocery store. Yeah, okay. When I this, was, is, this is the yeah. story I need to hear. I heard about yeah. an unscheduled audition in a yes. grocery store parking lot. <laughs> yes. So um, I was in seventh grade leaving cheer practice. And I go into the grocery store and I see Tony Vaughn and I tell my mom, I'm like, Ma, this cannot be real. But when I looked him up, I was like, oh, this is real. So I go up to him. He's checking out. He's checking out his groceries and everything. And I'm like, hi, um, my name's Kiki and I want to be an actress. Can you put me on TV? <laughs> I don't know. I think he just saw the boldness in, in me and he was willing to at least talk to me, which meant so much to me. And I walked with him all the way to his car like a creep. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, so can you tell me this? Can you tell me this? <laughs> but he was so sweet. And um, I did a monologue for him in the parking lot. And um, I mean, that's like the now that I am, you know, on this side of acting, I'm like, that is not something that um, everyone would allow. Uh-huh. But he was nice enough to you know, be willing to give me my my chance. And ever since then, he has helped me so much with just, you know, guidance through my acting career and helping me know, like, okay, this is this is a good decision to make. This isn't. You should go to this class, not this one. You should meet with these people, not these people. So I'm, I thank him so much for that. That's a, an amazing story. I'm speaking with Kiana <laughs> Simone Simpson, actress, Decatur native, UGA student. You may recognize her from the new Netflix series Chambers, CW's Black Light or The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, which I definitely want to talk about. But poor Tony Vaughn, I bet he doesn't go to the same supermarket anymore. I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ever tell anybody which supermarket he goes to. Okay, so Yvonne in Chambers is far from your first major role. In 2017, you played Henrietta Lacks' adolescent daughter, Deborah, in the HBO drama The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Let's hear just a little clip. 
Did you know my mama? No, her selves. But everybody does. They've been in outer space, in a nuclear bomb. You should be proud. But she said everybody knows her. She done been in bombs and outer space. Mama sells something big. Yeah, hush. We put your mouth in the ground when you was two. You alive or you dead? Can be both. Finally, somebody did call me back, asking for more of my blood. What made my mama sick? What kind of cancer? Am I gonna get it too? And how can she rest a piece if they keep shooting her up? Well, so we hear a little bit of Oprah's voice there as the adult version of Deborah Lacks. Oprah, who also executive produced, how did you get that role? Well, um, I, I really think manifestation helped me with getting that role because I had been called Oprah my entire life, which was like, oh my gosh, everyone thinks I look like Oprah? I want to play her in a movie one day then. <laughs> so um, it was something that I spoke into existence for a long time. And when I got the audition, it was almost unbelievable because I, I was like, there's no way. This is almost like written for me. Mm. <laughs> so um, when I when I auditioned, I was super nervous, but I was very excited and I prepared a lot more than other auditions. And um, when I when I got that when I got that call to come meet the director for a callback, I, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is this is really happening. And um, I, I booked the role, and within a few days, I was at GPB's location in Atlanta meeting <laughs> Oprah for the first time, <laughs> which amazing. was fantastic. <laughs> well, we all think of it, uh, the, the place, a lot differently after learning that. That's really quite amazing. <laughs> but now Oprah has told Vanity Fair she wants you to play her in a biopic. I know. Oh, my gosh. That day, when I when I heard that for the first time, I, I almost passed out. I couldn't believe it. It's just such an amazing feeling to know that Miss Oprah Winfrey sees me as talented enough to play her in a film. And that's my biggest dream. And I promise if the film's ever made that I will do her justice. Mm. Kiana, I, I feel like we're talking about an IMDb profile of someone who's been in entertainment for a really long time. <laughs> but you've been acting since you were a teenager. Is there, yes. do you think, a secret to your success? Or are you just that good? Um, I, I, I really think having faith and praying a lot has been something, well, I know that this is what's been helping me along. And also, I think persistence. I've always been like very serious on the saying, you can do both. Um, and that's something that I've always instilled in myself because I remained, you know, I, I remained a college student while I'm acting because I want to make sure that I have something to focus on when I'm not working. And I think that's something that happens to lots of actors and people in the film and even music industry where you're not getting work, you're kind of freaking out and you don't really know what to do. And um, you can kind of sometimes get in like a, a what am I doing with my life kind of um, place. And that's happened to me a few times. And when I'm going back to school and I'm in class, it's it's kept my head on straight. And I think that's why I've been able to continue working. Um, I just I kind of I, I have school on the other hand. Well, you know? I, I so don't I know how you balance things. it, honestly. I mean, that's I a pretty busy schedule. <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> but because we do have you. Uh, we're going to see you on the big screen again at the end of the month. Octavia Spencer's film Ma for this one. Now, they reached out to you without spoiling it. it tell us about this movie. Another horror film and your character. Yes. So, um. Miss Octavia Spencer plays a ma, and she meets a group of teenagers, and she wants to be the party mom. And um, it gets very spooky from there. So I play the younger version of Miss Octavia Spencer's character, and um, you get to see 
you get to see how Ma grew up and, you know, the things that she used to do. So, mm. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like, for one, you're not on the astronaut path anymore. You're kind of well on your way. Hopefully but, I play one one day. Yeah, there, there's a good way to do it. Um, yes. <laughs> but then, but it's also, you said your mom moved out to L.A. I mean, yes. that's a huge commitment. What is, what is her role in all of this? Your own ma. Yes, my own ma. So my mom has been the biggest supporter and honestly, like my my sidekick in this entire um, this entire pursuit because when I first began, um, when I moved out to LA, I was 15, so I was a minor. And my mom, she's always believed in me. And I think it even, you know, of course your mom's always gonna believe in you, but I did this showcase when I was uh, about 14 and I won the whole thing. I won Female Actor of the Year. And that's when she um, started, you know, knowing, okay, not only do I believe in her, but, you know, industry people do as well. So I think that's when she knew that, you know, if she's investing time and money, that there, you know, it's a possibility that something will come out of it. And also, I think she's, it was something new. My mom's a, a real tech geek. So she's a computer science um, person at AT&T. And um, she's, a, she's a real tech whiz. And um, I think it was just something new. The film industry was something that she hadn't done before. And um, she always tells me that, you know, I helped her bring a different type of, um, you know, excitement into her life, along with, um, you know, being a, a tech person. So she's been so helpful. And I'm just so happy to have her in my corner. Her name's Miss Anita Simpson. I have to shout out my mommy. (laughs) And she deserves it. And I want to thank you so much, Kiana Simone Simpson, for joining us today. All the best to you. She's a Decatur native, and the actress is also a student at UGA. And you can watch her in Chambers on Netflix right now and Ma with Octavia Spencer later this month. So that's our show for today. That's all we have time for. We'll be back with more of On Second Thought tomorrow. Thanks so much for joining us. And you can join our Facebook group. We're at On Second Thought on Facebook. And you can have a conversation there. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.